Welcome to the Big Drink Rethink podcast with me, your host, Anna Donaghy. If you've noticed that the drinking culture in the UK is changing and you're curious about why and what this means to your world, then this is the podcast for you. Throughout this series, I will be chatting with the thought-provoking, forward-thinking people at the heart of this shift to find out what makes them tick and to explore the sober curious perspective from all angles. And I'll also be giving you oodles of personal tools and tactics to help you get on board the big drink rethink. So hello and welcome to the second toolkit episode of this series. This is where I try and recap on the last two to three episodes and marry their key themes to some useful practical tools to help with your own rethinking. Now on the face of it, William Porter and Laura Bartlett's episodes were very different, but I'm going to draw a common theme of empowerment out of both of them and give you a couple of tools today which are intended to empower you. So the conversation I had with William was basically around drinking to cope and the fact that alcohol is, and we've said this before, the nation's favorite coping mechanism. He did a brilliant job at explaining why this is a particularly problematic motivation for drinking and quite simply why it's an incredibly flawed strategy otherwise known as a bad idea. He talked about the negative chemical, physiological and psychological impact that alcohol has, the disruption it creates to the body's balance, such that it kickstarts a chain of events that affect fundamental things like mood and sleep and energy. The even light, regular drinking means the constant presence of stress hormones and chemicals in our system impairing our sleep and having all the knock-on ripple effects that that has, that it effectively takes its toll on our health for sure. But it also makes us less able to cope. Drinking to cope and manage stress in our lives disempowers us. It makes us weaker, not stronger. Alcohol papers over the cracks. It's like sweeping the dust underneath the carpet. It is an anaesthetic. Being numb is not the same thing as being stress-free. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Being numb is not the same thing as being stress-free. Numbness wears off, and when it does, the stress and the stressors that you were trying to escape from are still there. If you're drinking to manage stress and anxiety, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you have a rethink. You need new ways to respond. Now, there is no magic wand here, I'm afraid. Our attachment to alcohol lies in its immediacy and its accessibility. It is a quick fix. Please, alcohol, make these bad and negative, noisy thoughts go away. But alcohol robs us of our power and it makes us believe that we need it. And whilst we use it, we aren't finding better, healthier tools. So obviously the question is, what can we do instead, right? 
Now, there's no shortage of advice on how to manage and reduce stress. There literally is no shortage of advice and published information on how to do that. From exercise to managing time spent on social media to meditation to managing your breathing to making sure that you're having a fantastic quality of sleep. If you're rolling your eyes at the thought of these being a substitute for drinking, it is very, very likely that you're comparing these to the relative ease with which you can pour a drink. But they are worth investigating and getting curious about. Because remember, being numb is not the same thing as being stress-free. These practices and others help tackle and eliminate stress rather than giving a temporary illusion that they are helping like alcohol when in fact they are making things worse like alcohol. So each of those things, you know, sleep, meditation, etc., they could be episodes in their own right. And I'm pretty sure they probably will be at some point. I can make it so. Uh, however, what I wanted to focus on here today is actually just trying to create calmer times. If drinking is very much a response to stress, then of course it makes perfect sense to try and address those sources. Now, I can hear people everywhere saying that it's impossible to do that. We simply can't remove stress from life. Of course we can't. Of course we can't. Life is stressful. But what I am saying is that if there are obvious single causes, things that you can determine, that you can pull apart one from another, then knowing that it's not going to be easy to sort these things overnight, then start. Start the work to try and resolve them. But here's my big tip, the one for today. Begin with the things that you can control. You. Look close to home and consider whether you, yourself, may be generating unnecessary stress in your life. A little bit punchy, I admit, but I ask you this only because I know from very painful personal experience how this can be the case, and I see it so often in the people that I coach. So let me explain. I carried an unhealthy sense of perfectionism around for decades of my life, and it shaped what I was like in every aspect of my life, professionally and personally. I really over-prepared for stuff. I really over-egged the pudding on most things that I did. I over-complicated and endlessly polished my work. I was unwilling to share thoughts and work and projects before they were fully rounded and dead impressive. I wanted to look accomplished at everything. Beliefs that I had, which I now know I had, which I didn't know at the time, beliefs around my own inadequacies drove that perfectionism. But it was exhausting in every single aspect of my life. It was exhausting. I was setting myself and then chasing unachievable high standards. And actually, there was no time when this was more obvious than when I became a mum in my late 30s. 
I was totally out of control and totally out of my depth. And I compared myself really cruelly to people who seemed to be more natural at this whole mother thing than me. I really, really compared myself cruelly and I envied them. I felt shame at the same time for feeling that. So that made me feel a whole lot worse as well. But in short, I felt a huge amount of emotional pain. And for many of us, perfectionism and control, i.e., you know, just, just the attempts to try and achieve it, are at the very heart of a lot of our anxiety and stress. Our brains tell us that the way to decrease our anxiety is to be, or think we are, more in control. But the trouble is that trying to control the countless aspects of your life puts you on a hiding to nothing. There's no end. There is no solution. There's no feasible goal. And here's the thing. Control does not exist. It is an illusion. Full control is not actually achievable ever. At all. And the more we strive for it, the more out of reach it becomes. However, this is really, really good, there is a distinct difference between being in control and being in charge. And I've got a really useful exercise to help unpack the unhelpful expectations that you might have for yourself so that you can move more freely into taking charge of your mind and your emotions when you are feeling stressed or when you feel like the stress will never end, all right? And I'm going to pop this exercise onto the resources page of my website, but effectively I'm going to run through it quickly here as well. I'm going to give you some questions and just sit for a minute and think about them here. I mean, do go and do the exercise properly because it really, really helps, but this is basically the gist of it. A series of really important questions. Question number one. What unhelpful expectations do you have for yourself that leads to feelings of frustration and defeat? Question number two. Who else in your life do you hold to equally high expectations? Question number three. How often do you feel that you're failing at being a good enough partner, a good enough parent, a good enough employee, or a good enough friend? So how often do you feel you're failing at being good enough? Question number four. How do you talk to yourself when you don't meet the expectation that you have set for yourself? Are you kind or unkind? Are you forgiving or are you harsh? Hmm. Interesting. Have you ever thought, sorry, this isn't a question now. This is kind of me just going on. Have you ever thought about where the expectations you have for yourself come from? Think about it. They are literally made up. There is no rule that proclaims how much you should give, how much you should do, 
how much you should sacrifice, achieve or accomplish in a day to tick the good enough box. Your unachievable standards are in fact arbitrary. They are made up. And so is any mental beating that you give yourself when you don't meet them. That's bonkers. The solution? Set yourself some new standards, ones that you can achieve and fulfil on. Commit to take on less. Commit to do less. Agree to less. Commit to beating yourself up less. Now, if you're a really high bar setting perfectionist, as I was, then the mere thought of lowering your expectations can make you come out in hives and make you think you're letting yourself off the hook, etc., etc., etc. I get that. But remember, it's you who hung that hook, right? If you are setting the, heart, the, the bar too high, then it is your bar to lower. And surely, surely, there is scope to bring it down, especially if the height of that bar is causing you stress and driving you to drink and causing you to risk both your physical and mental health. Okay, now go on. I'm back with the questions, right? This is interesting. Next question. Start at number one again. Make a list of the people who you are currently harboring resentment towards for one reason or another. Who, who's disappointed you recently, basically? Question number two. To what degree is this frustration and resentment the result of them not having met the expectations that you have of them? Question number three. What are you expecting of other people that they simply are not able to give you? Now, this does not mean, by the way, that your expectation is unreasonable necessarily, but it might just be that it's not in their psyche or character to be able to deliver it. Question number four. Can you visualise removing those expectations from others? The ones that they are failing or cannot meet. What can you let go of there? Can you see how that would put you in charge? Okay, as I said, there's a worksheet on my website in the resources page. Thought-provoking already, I hope, but I would definitely go and print off those sheets and think about those questions in a little bit more detail. Hopefully you can see how that exercise will open up opportunities for you to perhaps reduce some of the self-imposed stress and anxiety that you have in your life. And there's another thing that we can do. Knowing that we cannot remove all stress from life means that we can work on our response to it. This is something that is incredibly hard to do when we're being depleted. I mean, Laura talked about the power in waking up in the morning and celebrating the possibilities of a brand new day. But this is well nigh impossible with a raging hangover and 
all those residual chemicals and stress hormones floating around in your system. But we can try and work on our response to stress. And as a key part of this, a key part of responding differently, is about becoming comfortable with negative feelings, becoming comfortable, more comfortable with our emotions. When I was a big drinker, in fact, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the reasons I became a big drinker was I fell foul of a belief that I should be happy all the time. It meant striving to put a happy face to the world, basically keeping up a facade because you can't be happy all the time. And you see this all the time these days on social media where people share the fun vacations, the pretty food, never the baby crying, the burnt dinner, the big marital arguments or the embarrassing work meetings. You know, we feel it's really important to show our best selves to others and to appear strong, independent and upbeat. And then we fall into the trap of comparing our real lives with edits of other people's lives, all whilst feeling the pressure to keep up with our own sort of everything is great exterior. But it's an absolute nonsense. Studies show that there are about 30, I think, someone's going to pull me up on that, about 30 different emotions and therefore hundreds of combinations of emotions. And we're supposed to experience and feel them all, not just happiness. Avoiding emotions every now and then is fine, even adaptive, like, you know, when we swallow our tears to try not to cry at work, for example, but habitually avoiding emotional discomfort is not a recipe for wellness in the long run. In fact, chronically avoided emotions, constantly avoided emotions are the root of many common diagnoses like anxiety and depression and and addiction. So letting them exist and recognizing them as an important part of life, not squashing them down, please go away, please go away, please alcohol help numb these feelings, not squashing them down is crucial to making us feel less afraid of them and ultimately less compelled to try and escape them. So crucial in a way, in a fundamental way, to growing and becoming more resilient. And we're going to come back to this in future episodes because it's so important. However, for now, I want to talk about the conversation I had with Laura. If the episode with William was around how alcohol takes away our power or, you know, handicaps our ability to become powerful, then my chat with Laura included some kick-ass, empowering principles to live by. Ours was a conversation around growth and purpose and self-actualization. Her message is that left to our own devices, we can scale and stand on proverbial mountains. And I loved that conversation because it totally aligns to the key message of the Big Drink Rethink, that this is not about sobriety. It's about being happy. Yes, I want to present solutions to people who think they have a problem, 
But the key question for many is simply whether your life is good enough. How much better can it be? And by the way, this is a complete unknown. So don't don't sit there thinking you know the answer. If you can only remember a time when you've been a drinker, you have to suspend judgment and consider that you don't know what it's like to be a non-drinker. Laura's view on life is that we can get caught up in meaning and purpose, that this can cause stress in itself. Have you got meaning and purpose? I'm not sure I've got meaning and purpose. She's got meaning and purpose. Oh my God, I need a meaning and purpose. But our common purpose, she says, is all the same. To be the very best version of ourselves that we can be and to fulfill on our potential because that's how we benefit everybody else. When we are great, we are great for other people and that's how we benefit the world at large. And the fundamental question that she asked herself one morning is really simple and kind of cool, really. She woke up one morning and she said, you know what? If I am achieving what I am achieving when I'm not at 100%, just imagine what I could do if I allowed myself to be 100% without the roller coaster cycle of hangover and tiredness, without the energy sapping, ambition diminishing effects of alcohol. Here's a great exercise to do. I'm just going to give it a little bit of an intro. Years ago, too many years ago, 150 years ago, when I was changing jobs, I was between jobs and I was invited to go and see a career uh, coach. Uh, One of my first ever experiences of coaching and I was given a free session and I thought, oh, it's free, why not? So I went along and to cut a very long story short, she asked me, lovely lady, she said to me, "Um, how satisfied are you, Anna, with the job that you're leaving? So, you know, with that current job, the one that you're, you know, leaving behind and before you go off and find your next one, how satisfied are you with that job? And I said to her, oh, seven out of 10, I said with utter conviction. After all, I was looking for a new one. So I knew that there were things that it wasn't offering me, things that I wanted that it wasn't offering me. So I was relatively confident in my answer. And I said, seven out of 10. And I was confident until she asked me what 10 out of 10 looked like. I didn't have a clue. Not Scooby. She had me there, basically. I, I, I didn't know. And she said to me, interesting. If you don't know what 10 out of 10 looks like, how the hell do you know that you're at a seven? Hmm. Her message was really simple. You need to have a sense of what you want for yourself before you can gauge where you are. Now, there is an exercise which is much used in coaching circles called the wheel of life. It's not my framework, but I'm tweaking it here for purposes that will become abundantly clear. But it is a framework, it's called the wheel of life, and it is an exercise entirely and very simply based around that premise of scoring your satisfaction. But instead of asking you that question simply related to your career or your job, it in fact asks you to score 
all the dimensions of your life. He categorizes them. So where are you on a scale out of 10 for things like your personal growth, money and finance, health and fitness, recreation and leisure, partners and love, family and friends, spirituality. Now I've put this exercise again on the website for you to download and I do really urge you to do so because this this is definitely one that's that's best done on paper. It's really it's it's good actually it's fun. <laughs> uh, I really urge you to do it. But it basically involves ranking your satisfaction with each aspect of those or, or each of those aspects of your life out of 10. So, for example, how satisfied are you with personal growth out of 10? Well, you might think, oh, that's an interesting one. Don't know that I am growing. Am I growing? Am I learning? Am I developing? Does it bother me whether I am or I'm not? Uh, am I inching towards fulfilling my potential or am I happy where I am? How satisfied am I with that state of affairs? And you give yourself a score out of 10. Then you might say, okay, the next one, career. How satisfied am I with my career? Are there doors open to me that I need to have open to me? How happy am I with my pay? The degree to which work respects me or acknowledges me, the way in which it nourishes me versus depletes me. And then you'll move on after giving that a score out of 10. The next one, health and fitness. How satisfied am I with my health and fitness on a score out of 10? How do I feel each day? And your recreation or your leisure time is it as expansive as you'd like? Are there things you used to enjoy that have fallen by the wayside? Are there things that you would like to do that you never seem to be able to find the time to do? Anyway, you get the picture. If you're doing this on paper, you plot your scores and you end up with a sort of an image, a shape on the framework on the graph. And then you ask yourself some really simple questions. How do you feel about those aspects of your life when you look at it like that, when you look at those scores? Which of those dimensions would you most like to improve, which mean the most to you, really? And how do you currently spend your time in those areas? And that gives you a picture of where your life is now, okay? And then this is where it gets really interesting. Next, you think about the life that you want. The idea is that you think big here. You sort of channel your in a Laura Bartlett. <laughs> you don't hold back. We're talking hopes and dreams. This is how living your best life would look, regardless of where you are right now, okay? Now, if you find it tricky to define sort of individual precise elements, it may help you to think in terms of feelings, maybe. So you might not know the specific job you would love, but you might know that you'd love a job that makes you feel influential or feel purposeful or feel passionate. So in each category, you do take the time to answer the question that the career coach asked me many, many years ago, of what 10 out of 10 in each of those categories looks like. And then finally, when you've defined those 10 out of 10s, the standard exercise says, what has you living the life that you have instead of living the life that you want? So what's holding you back from achieving those tens? What do you need to change? And crucially, the additional question that I pop in here 
very much, of course, for the purpose of the Big Drink Rethink, is to what degree is alcohol holding you back? To what degree is alcohol specifically holding you back? It can be really simple stuff, like you're six out of 10 happy with finances. And you might think, well, what the hell's that got to do with alcohol? But do a simple calculation. Have a look at how much you spend. I worked out that in any given year, I was spending upwards of about £1,800 on alcohol. Horrifying, I kid you not. But there, you know, there's me sitting there going, I can't afford a holiday. I can't afford this. I can't afford that. I wish we had this. I wish we had that. And I'm drinking nearly £2,000 a year's worth of alcohol and bemoaning my satisfaction with a 6 out of 10. Interesting. It could be that from a recreational point of view, every week looks the same. You might feel you're in a bit of a rut from a leisure perspective. But that's what happens when you subconsciously decide that everything you do needs to involve alcohol, i.e. you narrow down the range of what life can look like. Okay, so you get the idea. Look at your scores and just have a genuine think about the degree to which alcohol is holding you back from achieving your 10 out of 10s in any given dimension. Now, look, if you are genuinely happy with what you're looking at, that's fine. That's brilliant. But if not, make a commitment to yourself today to pursue what you want in life. Maybe you take one aspect or dimension of that exercise at a time, but remove alcohol as the factor that is holding you back. Now, for me, alcohol was the big domino because when I was brutally honest with myself, it had become a limiter on all aspects of my life such that, you know, It wasn't just limiting my finances, my career. It was limiting my ability to even get out of bed in the morning. So it was such that when I removed it, you know, the chain reaction, the knock-on effect was incredible. And remember the four C's that I mentioned in the episode with Laura. If not, do, do go back and listen because it's Dan Sullivan's model of growth and it's pretty profound. The four C's. Commitment comes first. So make a commitment to yourself to fulfill your potential. Okay. Commitment creates courage. Courage creates capability. Capability creates confidence. So that was the key takeout of the model, wasn't it? That confidence is not the start point or therefore the vital ingredients. Confidence is the result and commitment is the start point. So now you can see what your 10 out of 10s are. Now you can see where the gaps are in your life. That's what you're giving yourself a chance for shooting for. That's what you're committing to. We have one shot at this life, okay? And the whole courage thing, the whole fear thing, this can be greatly reduced. The whole thing can be de-risked. If you get into the mindset of trial, curiosity, 
and investigation, it makes so much difference. Don't slip into the paralyzing thought of making forever decisions. Get into the incredibly empowering thought of, I get to see what happens when I don't drink for a bit. Remember Laura's principle of focusing on the gains, not on what you're giving up, but what you're going to gain. And again, it's there. You've done that. It's your 10 out of 10s. And then all the things that you didn't expect are going to come along with it too. All the unexpected joys, all the unexpected enhancements to your life. And take small steps. That's what she said, isn't it? She said that she committed to 100 days and it just kept rolling. Yours could be a month. It could be two months. It could be whatever you want it to be. But, you know, enough for you to kind of get the ball rolling. And you'll continue because you'll be feeling so good. And, of course, it's going to breed that capability and the confidence. I have never met anyone for whom drinking less or not at all did not improve their life dramatically. But if it helps to tell yourself that this is a trial, then there is no risk. And remember what we said, if learning is the goal, then there can be no failure. Right. Both the exercises I've talked about today are on my website in the free resources section. It's all very well signposted. So please do head there, download the exercises and and do them for yourselves. And I'm also going to point out that my Rethink program is also there. It's a six-week structured and coaching-led program. If you want to lean into that curious exploration about how enhanced life gets, then it is a brilliant way of doing it supported by me. Whilst I help you explore your personal beliefs around alcohol, the jobs you give it to do, and equip you with better tools, it's incredible value and you'll also find it there on the website too. So thank you for tuning in and I will be back next week with another guest episode and more perspectives to fuel the big drink rethink. Thank you for listening and getting curious. Please rate, review and follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're choosing to listen. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode. And you can find out more about the big drink rethink by heading to my website, thebeliefscoach.com. That's the beliefs, B-E-L-I-E-F-S coach.com where you will see clear links to the show.